0: Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Pastor Ron's and invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find a blue hue Bible there in front of you. You'll find our text on page 892 this morning. And as we look again at John's Gospel, we notice that we are about a third of the way through in our study of this glorious Gospel. And as we begin to Uh, look at this chapter, we see another theme begin to emerge. It's the theme of time. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks more about time than He does about light or water or bread. There are generally two ways we see that Jesus talks about time here. The first way He speaks of time is in reference to His own time. Specifically, the appointed time that He will lay down His life On the cross, the other way he talks about time is in reference to the coming kingdom of God, when Jesus returns again to raise us up on the last day. Now, this is important to note, given what happens at the end of chapter six. Jesus loses a lot of followers. John says in verse sixty-six that many of them turned back and no longer followed him. What? could have prompted this mass exodus. Well, it wasn't what Jesus did. It was rather what He said. He told them that He was the divine bread of life come down from heaven. And what's more, the only way to have real life was to feed on Him, to eat His flesh and drink His blood. There were some who fell away because they couldn't believe what He said. It sounded grotesque, even cannibalistic. How could He say this? Others fell away because they wouldn't believe what He said. Jesus' claims of divinity were too much to take. They were blasphemous. He needed to get over His Messiah complex. It was all too much. And they wanted out. I wonder what the Twelve thought of this mass exodus. Were they worried about what it might mean for them? Were they frustrated with Jesus for continuing to say controversial things? It certainly seems that Jesus has made life more difficult for them, but none more difficult than for Himself. Clearly, Jesus' ways and timing are often different from our own. That's why we need His perspective of time. And He invites us in to see And to learn from it. So turn with me to John 7. I'll begin reading in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask once again that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would unstop our ears, that you would clear away the distractions that that the enemy loves to work into our minds at a time like this. Would you give us your grace to hear from you? We need To hear from you this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this will come as no shock to you. People around the world view time differently. We don't see it the same way. The way we view time in North America is often very different than the rest of the world. If you've ever been to Latin America or Africa or Asia, you'll likely experience this phenomenon. Take worship, for example. Well, here at Rivermont, worship starts promptly, promptly at 8.30 and 11. Peggy tells us exactly what time the prelude's going to start so that when one of the pastors stands up to welcome you all, it's right at 8.30 and 11 o'clock. We will start the worship service on time, even if you are not present. Now, that's not necessarily true of a church, say, in Guatemala or, uh, or uh, Uganda. The service might list the start time of 9 a.m., but it might be 10.30 before the service actually gets going. They won't start the worship service until everyone is gathered. Now, what's the reason for this phenomenon? Well, it's all in how we view time. As I was preparing for today's informational meeting for our summer mission trip to El Salvador, I was reviewing this wonderful book, Helping Without Hurting in Short-Term Missions. And in it, the authors point point out our differing views of time. As a largely white North American congregation, we operate from what's called a monochronic view of time. This view means that we see time as a commodity. It's a limited resource to be stewarded wisely and purposefully. And we achieve that through efficiency and productivity. And as a culture, we hate wasting time. And we love saving time. Our technologies play a huge role in helping us to be more effective in our planning and our productivity. Our, our computers, our phones our ATMs, our self-checkouts, these all help us plan and make the most of our limited time. But see, this view is in complete contrast to what's called a polychronic view of time. People living in Latin America, Africa, Asia, they see time less restrictively. They view time as being much more expansive, even nebulous. Time for them is almost an limitless entity as a result they don't share our zeal for efficiency and punctuality they know there's always more time to get things done relationships always trump efficiency that's why they won't start a worship service until everyone has gathered now inevitably the intersection of these two cultures these two views of time causes conflict and misunderstanding. I've seen that happen on a number of mission trips. A team goes in thinking that they're caring best for the community through their tasks and their work and their projects. And yet the community there, it seems like to them that, it, that they're uncaring. The team doesn't really care. Because they're so focused on tasks and not relationships. Neither one can understand why the other is frustrated or disappointed, but it's because they see time differently. They view it completely differently. And I think something like that is happening in our text here this morning. Jesus and His brothers have a conflicting view of time. Jesus' brothers understand time from a, a temporal and worldly perspective. They really can't see beyond the moment. Time is always of the essence. Yet Jesus looks at time from an eternal and spiritual perspective. He doesn't hurry redemption. He doesn't force it. He's not pressed by the fleeting nature of time. He knows when the time is right. I remember going on my first mission trip almost 15 years ago. Denise and I took a group of college students down to the capital city of Honduras, which is Tegucigapa, and we were working with a, ministry, a missionary who had a wonderful ministry, working with boys, young boys, who lived on the streets. Most of them were addicted to industrial shoe glue. It was cheap and would take away their hunger pains. But it would take away, it would take away more than their hunger. It would often take away their life. You, see, you could see its effect in their hollow eyes and their expressions. Our missionary and his staff sought to befriend these young boys on the street. And they would give them food. They'd play soccer with them. They'd just sit down and listen to them. They would do anything they could to get to know them, to, to engender trust amongst these young boys. As we encountered each young boy on the street, our missionary would give us the backstory of each of these missionaries. And one boy in particular, well, he really, he really got to us. We we loved his expression. It wasn't as hollow as the others. And yet, as we learned of his story, it was a sad story. And it didn't seem that he would have much hope. I asked our missionary, why don't you just take him? You know what he's up against. You know the danger that he's in. Why don't we just take him with us? I could tell that my missionary had been asked that question many times before. He looked at me and he said, he's not ready to leave the streets yet. If he comes with us, he'll just go right back. We have to wait for him to be ready. And he was speaking from years of experience. And yet it didn't stop him and his staff offering these boys a new life. What our missionary said will forever stick with me. I can't take them until they're ready. I can't force God's work. I can't get ahead of His timing. And yet so often I find myself trying to do the very thing. Trying to push my agenda on God. Trying to force His hand. Because somehow I think I know best. That I know when the time is right. Jesus' brothers were doing that to Him as well. John tells us that this encounter took place during the feast of he gives us this detail, not simply as a, a chronological marker in the story, but as a theological sign. But a sign of what? Well, first, let's remember what the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was. Its origins were first connected to the wilderness wanderings that we see in Exodus and Numbers. After being delivered from Egypt, the people wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. Why did they wander around? It wasn't because they were lost. It was because of their unbelief. They failed to believe that God would fulfill His promises to them to bring them into the promised land. And so they wandered as a nomadic people for 40 years. And they they lived in these tents or, or booze as they traveled around the wilderness. This was a painful lesson for the people to learn. And they didn't want to forget it. God didn't want them to forget it. And So after their wanderings, God gave them the Feast of Booths. It was to be a national reminder that the Lord was their God. During this eight-day feast, Israelite families would then set up these makeshift tents or booths in their backyard. They They would eat in them or sleep in them during that time. And it was a chance to retell the story of their national faithlessness and God's faithfulness. In fact, if you go into Orthodox communities today, you would find during Feast of Booze these little huts almost set up in people's backyards. When we lived in St. Louis for 18 years, we would always see in those parts of the community that were Jewish these little booze. And we weren't real sure why that was until we understood about the Feast of Booze. And like the other two major feasts of Passover and Pentecost... The Feast of Booths was also an agricultural festival. This feast took place at the end of the harvest season in autumn. It was a celebration of the harvest of grapes and and olives and grains. Tens of thousands of Jewish people would, would stream into Jerusalem and Judea for this festive celebration. And as Christians, it's easy for us to think that Passover was the greatest feast. But for the Jew... The Feast of Booze was the greatest. Leon Morris explains, he says, The Feast of Booze marked the successful completion of their labors. The harvest was in the barns. The people could relax and rejoice. It was the feast of an agricultural people. But how is the Feast of Booze a theological sign? Well, like the Passover, this festival was a major symbol of Israel's great hope. That the Messiah was coming and He would liberate them from Rome. It pointed to the long-awaited shalom for the people and the land. The universal peace and flourishing that would follow the Messiah's coming. A never-ending resting and rejoicing. Jesus' brothers thought, what what better time for Jesus to present Himself as the Messiah than at the Feast of Booths. There's already a heightened sense of anticipation and celebration that's happening all around. His brothers tell him in verse 3 and 4, you need to go to Jerusalem, to Judea, and start demonstrating your power. Don't just do it in secret for only a few to see. Do it in public. Do it where everyone can see and be convinced that you're the Messiah. Now, it's hard to know what his brothers really thought about Jesus, because we can't hear the conversation. We don't know tone. But John gives us an idea of how they felt about Jesus in verse 5. It's clear that they didn't really believe in Jesus. By that, John means they didn't believe that He really was the Messiah. It's not that they couldn't believe. It's that they wouldn't believe. They wouldn't allow themselves to to believe despite all the evidence around them. Who could argue that Jesus was special? having been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Who could deny Jesus' specialness with the miracles that He did daily, healing people, restoring people? But to forgive sins? Absurd. To identify as God's Son? Ungodly. Does that sound like anyone in your family? Anyone in your family find the claims of Christ to be absurd? If so, I want you to be encouraged and comforted by this thought. Jesus knows exactly what that's like. He knows what you've gone through and what you're going through. Listen to J.C. Ryle's assessment. Too often believers blame themselves because their families remain worldly and unbelieving. But let them look at the verse before us. "...in our Lord Jesus Christ there, were no, there was no fault in His temper, word, or deed. Yet even Christ's own brethren did not believe in Him. Seeing Christ's miracles, hearing Christ's teaching, living in Christ's own company were not enough to make men and brothers believers. The mere possession of spiritual privileges never yet made anyone a Christian." Think of this. Outside of his mother and presumably his father, if Joseph is still around, we're not sure, Jesus had no other believers than his family. That that is staggering to me. How close they were to Jesus and yet how blind they were to see who he was. And yet unless the time is right and their eyes are open, they will never be able to see It's encouraging to learn that his brother James and Judas eventually did become Christians. Both became leaders in the church. Both even wrote epistles in our New Testament. Dear saint, remain in prayer for those in your family. For those in your relational circles who have yet to trust in Christ. Don't grow weary in your praying or your loving. Trust in God's timing and not your own. His timing is always right. Jesus' brothers thought the time was right for Jesus to make a big splash. Yet because Jesus saw time differently, he knew the time was wrong to go to Judea. John tells us plainly in verse 1 why the time was wrong. The Jewish authorities were seeking to kill him. We first read of their intentions in chapter 5. They sought to kill Jesus, not only because He healed a lame man on the Sabbath, but He called God His Father, making Himself equal with God. In essence, they hated Jesus, not only because He claimed to be equal with God, but that He broke the very law God had given to His people thousands of years earlier. He's a false Messiah, a wolf in sheep's clothing. He shouldn't be followed. He should be destroyed. And yet as we come to chapter 7, Jesus offers a different explanation for why the authorities hated him so. He says in verse 7 that the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus says that the real reason the Jewish authorities hated him is because he's exposing their hearts. He's revealing the ugly truth of what's inside. He's like a mirror that that shows them what they refuse to see or that they cannot see. The Apostle Paul, a former Jewish authority himself, would later experience similar treatment. And he offers a similar assessment of the Jewish authorities in Romans 10, beginning in verse 2. He writes, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We might summarize it like this. The Jewish authorities wanted to expose Jesus' sin so they might kill Him. Jesus wants to expose the Jewish authorities' sin so that He might forgive them. Likewise, Jesus wants to expose our sin so that He might forgive us. The thing is, exposure is painful. It's the worst kind of nakedness. And you want to know why? It's painful because it shows us what we're really living for. It shows us what we're truly looking to in order to give us life. The Jewish authorities hid behind their traditions They hid behind their piety. They they hid behind their service. But their hearts told a different story. They weren't looking to God for their righteousness. They were looking to themselves for their righteousness. Because we live in Lynchburg, we can easily do the same thing. We can hide behind our church attendance. We can hide behind our Bible knowledge. We can even hide behind our service. But God knows the truth. He knows what's in our hearts. He can see the unforgiveness. He can see the unrepentant heart. He can see the self-righteousness. He can even see the half-heartedness. And yet, in spite of the awful truth, He loves us. He loves us enough to expose our sin. To expose it so that we can be saved and redeemed from it. He calls us out of our hiding places and into His marvelous light. He calls us into gospel community to be known and to be loved. To enter into one another's lives so that the truth of the gospel can be experienced and pressed deeper. And if you don't have that kind of community, will you let me know? We we so deeply want everyone to experience the gospel transformation that comes from being in community. And while it was the wrong time for Jesus to go to Judea and be recognized as the Messiah, a time was coming when He would do just that. A time was coming when He would usher in the very kingdom of heaven He was born to inaugurate. I've often wondered what it must have been like for Jesus to know what was before Him. What must it have been like for Him to get up every morning knowing what awaited Him? knowing that He was one day closer to His death and yet one day closer to accomplishing His Father's mission. We really don't know what it was like for Him. But this we do know. Jesus never wavered in His mission. He never faltered in His submission to the Father's will. He never doubted His call to rescue the sons of men. He was never under any illusion that His time was His own. And yet I wonder if we don't suffer from the delusion that our time is our own. Much like our money, we may feel a certain sense of entitlement with our time. We give God our time on Sundays, but the rest of the week belongs to us and we'll spend it how we think best. And if left to our own devices, we can get real selfish with our time. We can easily neglect the needs of others so we can take care of our own needs. And I regularly struggle with that. And I am reminded of what Paul says twice in 1 Corinthians. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Whether it's your money, it's your time, your body, your freedom, none of these belong to you. But here's the good news of the gospel. Through Christ, you belong to God. In fact, God paid a high price to make you His own. How high? He paid the ultimate price. He sent Jesus who John rightly identifies in chapter 1 as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's your sin and mine. Jesus was to be the once and for all Passover Lamb. He would sacrifice His unblemished life on the cross. It would be the blood of His sacrifice that would spare us from judgment. It was His death that would make us forever alive in Him. He was forsaken by God on the cross so that you and I might never be forsaken. He was alienated from God for our sins that we might be reconciled to God in His righteousness. This is what awaited Jesus. His time was coming. And you know what? Our time is coming as well. The psalmist says that God has ordained all of our days before any came into existence. He sovereignly picked the day He would bring us into the world as well as the day that He will bring us home in Christ. The question that you and I must sincerely wrestle with this morning is this. How are we living in light of the certain fact that our time is coming? While Jesus knew when His time time would come to an end, none of us know. None of us have the power to know when our time will come, but we do know that it will come. Let me ask you this morning, how do you view your time? Do you see it from an eternal and spiritual perspective, as Jesus did? That it is something to be steward and not to be stolen? A gift to be used for God's purposes and not our own? Or do you see it from a temporal and worldly perspective, as Jesus' brothers did? That it belongs to us. And it can be used however we see it fit. How you view time will make all the difference in this world and the world that is to come. Because you see, timing is everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You that Jesus knew His time. And that He did not waver from what You called Him to do for us. Father, would that create in us a sense of gratitude and not duty for living our lives in complete submission to You. That not just our time, but every aspect of our life we would live as You are the owner of our life. Father, would we see through Jesus, a love that was so great that when You expose our sin, You do it because You want us to be with You. May that truth dominate our mind, dominate our life. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.